is indeed amazing grace that has brought us all here today. Um, I mean, that's why we're here, right? Yes. Celebrate this grace that we've been just been richly given to us by our God. Um, it's always just such a, a great honor um, and and humbling to get to to come here and speak. It's gonna bother me. Um, I certainly, you know, I remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 where he said he, he wasn't sufficient for the ministry that, that God gave him, but he was certain that God was able to make him sufficient for that. And um, I've certainly been praying to that same extent that God would make me sufficient for this today. Um, so I'm grateful for this. We're going to be uh, continuing in Mark today, and we're going to go to Mark chapter 12. And the verses are going to be 13 through 27. And these are really two different passages, and I'll kind of approach them in two as two different passages. Verses 13 through 17, and then 18 through 27. Um, I have kind of two main themes I want to talk about today. But, but before I get into that, I, I, want, to, I want to give a, just a brief recap of where we are in the book of Mark. Starting in... Chapter 11, if you'll remember, we are in the Passion Week. The cross lies before Christ. It's on His mind. I mean, you just think about it. It's, it's not something that we can really grasp, but He knows in a few days, I'm going to go, I'm going to hang on that cross, and I will be the sin substitute for the world. God's wrath will be poured out on me. I will be forsaken. That's on His mind. That's what lies before Him. That's the backdrop of this entire week. And yet he it just amazingly endures with such grace, such mercy, such truth. Um, starting back in Mark 11, if you'll remember, we had this, what we call the triumphal entry that Jesus had coming down the mountain into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a cult of a donkey, actually. If you'll remember, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, yet... Drew reminds us that this wasn't exactly triumphant. The same people that were crying out in that moment, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they would soon be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It just, it just kind of rang hollow. It wasn't exactly triumphant. And after that entry, Jesus then enters this temple, and if you'll remember, this was a very large area. I believe it's about 35 acres, so it's a big area, but it's, it's nighttime. There, there's not a lot of people there. And he surveys it, and I think no doubt contemplating what he's going to do the very next day. And after this, they, they go back to Bethany, and they retire for the evening. That was, that was Monday, alright? They get up the very next day, and they go back to Jerusalem, but on their way, Jesus sees this fig tree, fig tree that was in leaf, yet when he approached it, there was no fruit on it. And if you'll remember, he cursed it, says, may, may no fruit ever come from you again. And <laughs> Drew, I think two weeks ago, put it very simply, it's not about the tree. This thing is not about the tree. This is what I would like to call the, it's a visible parable of what's about to take place. Jesus is, is going to step into judgment over Jerusalem, and particularly at the temple. This symbolized 
this tree symbolized the, the fruitless perversion of the religion that these Jewish leaders had concocted that was just such a far cry from the religion that God had instituted. And I, and I even think this is a this symbolized something that would take place in about 40 years, 40 years from uh, around the time when Christ was walking on the earth. Titus, Vespasian, and the, the Roman army would sweep in and just obliterate the temple. In Mark 13, Jesus prophesies this. He says, not one stone will be left on another. And as we know from history, that's exactly true. Totally destroyed. Once they arrive in, in Jerusalem, Jesus in light of all these atrocities that have been committed at this temple, filled with this, this righteous zeal for the holiness of God's name, clears out the temple, gets everybody out. And I just, that's such an amazing thing to think. Thousands of people are there, 35-acre lot, and he just, he clears it out, one man. And I just, I, I would have liked to have seen that. that that's got to have been, this has got to be pretty interesting to witness, but... And, you know, again, we, we saw in a bit more detail, a bit of depth, I, I hope, in our city group Sundays, why this was so bad and what exactly was taking place. This temple that was to be the place where God's name was exalted. The house of prayer, Jesus called it. And, and even that's a uh, kind of reckoning or beckoning back to when it was initially instituted by Solomon. He, he said a lot. This is to be the house of prayer. And not only that, this is to be the place where people can come for atonement, to be reconciled, to be made right with God by sacrifices. But instead of this being a place where God's name was exalted, it was a place where the poor and people desperate for forgiveness were being exploited for monetary gain by the, the religious leaders of the day. And this is what Jesus means when he says, this should be a house of prayer, but instead you've made this a den of robbers. And he clears the place out. And after that whole scene, they, they exit the temple and they go back to Bethany. Again, to stay the night. And that was Tuesday. The next morning, they get up and again, they go back to the temple. And you just, you got, you got to love the boldness of our Lord. He knows his mission. He knows what he's doing. He knows no one really poses a threat. So he goes right back to the temple that he just cleared out the day before. And he's, he's quickly, quickly uh, met with these the Sanhedrin would have been about 70 people, and they're asking him, you know, you cleared out the temple. Who told you you could do that? What authority do you have to do that? What authority did you have to shut this, this thing down? And um, Jesus asked them a question before he answers. He says, he asked them a question about the, the ministry of John. Was it from heaven? Was it from man? And the heart that what he's driving at is, he, he wants them to answer that question, but I really believe he's getting that Will you acknowledge me for who I am? Will you acknowledge me as exactly who I have said I am, the Son of God, testified to you, yes, by my words, but by my miracles, consistently? Will you simply accept that plain, clear fact? And they would. So he turns around and says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And, and then right after that, he begins to give them a parable. We, we only have one parable in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, gives, he gives them three. Um, but this parable, the one that we read last week in City Group Sunday, it was clearly directed at them. They were seen as these murderous rebels against God and against his son. 
and, and it was clearly showing the deity of Christ and their rejection of it. And this, this was the one parable that they actually understood. And it angered them to such a degree that it, it furthered this desire to finally say, we've got to get this guy arrested. We've got to get Christ arrested. Now, but before I move on, because this is Wednesday, and that's where we're going to continue on, right past this parable that Jesus just gave to them. I, I just I want to say this um, about this parable. The parables are given to, to kind of hide the truth. People who don't want to accept what's true, Jesus still gives them the truth, but in a way that's that the truth is somewhat concealed. But they understood this one. And I think that's just such a great mercy of our Lord to do that. He, he is showing them consistently, again and again, this is who you are, rejectors, rebels, and this is who I am, the Son of God. And He shows them, you have no other option. You accept me or you reject me. And I just I just want to simply say this. When it comes to men being saved, the issue is never God. Men harden their hearts to the truth. Men reject what's plain. It is not a lack of mercy on God's part. God is not the one lacking in mercy. Men harden their hearts to the truth. And that's just what we saw last week. So, that's Wednesday. And that's where we're going to continue today, right on the tail end of this, these parables that Christ has just given, these, this, this Sanhedrin. And I want to pray before we start reading. Lord, I just I thank you so much for this, this time that we get to gather as your people. Lord, we just praise you for your goodness. And when we just sing about it, your, your boundless mercy and grace and love, Lord. Let our minds just, just go to that. May we understand your word today more. May we understand the truth about who we are, who you are, Lord. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would work in the hearts of, of these people and in my heart even. God, reveal to us the truth of your word. Would you encourage as we need encouragement? Would you convict as we need conviction? And I just I, I pray, Lord, if there's a word that is uttered out of, out of this mouth that is false or just misleading, would you... Would you help me to be corrected? And would you help these people? I pray to be even protected from that. I ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Mark 12, if you're not there, I would I would say let's turn there. Um, I'm going to just read the whole thing. Uh, verses 13 through 27. That's where we're at today. Okay. And I'm going to actually, you know what, just for context, I'm going to back up one verse. I'm going to start in verse 12. Again, giving them this parable, it angers them. This is their response. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. For they perceived, perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. Brief reprieve. After that, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring to me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. 
and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother, brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? The seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I've, I've entitled this, uh, this sermon, Living in Light of Eternity. I know none of you guys see that, but it just, it just kind of helps me formulate my mind of, after studying this, what do we need to talk about? What, what should we focus on? Um, and it's, it's evident to me from my own life experience how easily I think I can misconstrue you know, where should the focus of my life be? Kind of a question of where's the end goal? I, th I think sometimes the younger you are, the more short-sighted that goal can be for maybe some of the younger of us in here. Really just two sitting right here. <laughs> it's, you know, maybe just, I just want to get past high school. I want to go to college. Maybe, maybe get a job, spouse, children. Maybe if you're a little bit older, it's, you know, I just want my children to move out of the house and we want to let them be productive adults and, and I want to retire. I don't know. All these different goals. In our home, uh, lately, my wife and I, we, we have a lot of conversations about child care and how do you, how you train children well for the future. And she has a saying, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but if you can ask her afterwards. And it's something that, like, goes along the lines of, you're not parenting just a kid that's going to stay a kid forever. You're parenting a kid that's going to be a future adult one day, and they're going to make their own decisions. And I just, I think that's so wise, and it's, it's just absolutely true. And it, it kind of shows we need to be thinking way ahead, other than just right here, right now. The reality is, I think, on a spiritual level, we do the exact same thing with our own souls. We think very short-sighted. We think right here, right now, when the reality is we are people, every single one of us, who will stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. That's a sobering reality, but it's absolutely true. And I think that's just where our minds need to be on, on eternity. And, and not only that, but... I, Brethren, as Christians, we need to be people, we urge people to think about that. Because people don't. People don't want to think about it. People just think it's going to be all fine. I don't need to consider that. I don't need to tell others about that. People don't see it. And we need to be those who urge them lovingly to consider that. Consider their souls before a holy God and in light of eternity. I mean, the reality is we, we will live on forever. We will. Either in eternal glory or eternal damnation. And that, that's the reality. And, and that today, that's just, 
on this kind of simplest level, that's what I aim to speak about. Now, I want to come back to our, our text here. Um, and I'm just kind of going to go verse by verse a little bit. Um, I want to start with verse, just begin, verse 13. Um, we begin kind of with the reminder of the hearts of these, these Pharisees, these Herodians, but really just the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders as a whole. We see a reminder of who they are. Verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now that, that word here, I'm, I'm no Greek scholar, but I, I can look at a lexicon and I can understand a little bit. That the term here, I think is so important to understand in the original language because I don't think the translation really does it justice. Uh, but we need to understand this to understand the true hatred these men had for Christ. The term, it's only used once in all the New Testament. It's right here. And I believe it's pronounced agruo, I think. But, but the, the word is to hunt after, to take one by hunting. And my, my mind just goes to like, like a, you ever seen like a bear trap? It's got that pressure plate in the center and it's got those big metal teeth. And if something steps on it, it's going to grasp on. I mean, this is violent, violent language that is being used here. And I just, I, we need to understand that because they're not, they're not simply just trying to enter into some intellectual dialogue with Christ. What they want, they want to get him to say something that's going to lead ultimately to his arrest. Well, really, ultimately to his arrest and then to his punishment by the Romans, his corporal punishment by the Romans. They want to see him arrested. They want to see him put to death by the Romans. That's what they want. And these two conversations that we're going to look at, that is the goal of these people. So remember that as we're going into this. This is not just some interesting dialogue. They want to see him put to death. That's their aim here. And again, the backdrop of this, Jesus has just given these, these leaders this, this parable. And they were seen as just these, these wretched souls. They even, they even say these wretched souls that they want to, they're these murderous rebels against God. And it shocks them offends them to the degree that they, they leave his presence and then after some deliberation with the, the Sanhedrin that they come back in verse 14 they send the Pharisees and the Herodians and after all this you know okay we got to get them how are we going to get them let's come up with some question to, to get them into some hot water this is their question that they come up with verse 14 and they come to him, they came to him and said teacher we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Should we not? I mean, after all their plotting, this is their big, grandiose plan. Question about taxes. It's a hot-button issue then, as, as it is now, I suppose. But, you know, in all honesty, this is a very, this is a very, very well-crafted question. Could have easily led in Christ's arrest. So why, why was it so good? I want to give you I want to give you two reasons to understand this. One, historically, the Jews they have been, they are conquered by Rome. They're not free. They are in their minds and in, in, in reality, truth be told, they are in a lot of ways oppressed by the Roman rule. Hatred towards Rome was not uncommon amongst the Jews. Not uncommon at all. I, I even read in some commentaries that it was reported that the Pharisees, in, in large majority, were teaching the people. The Pharisees had a lot more sway than the Sadducees did. The Pharisees, they were kind of the, the people looked to them. 
um, the Pharisees were teaching that a Jew was morally obliged to not pay taxes to Caesar. And that it would be a sin against God if you did. So that's kind of the consensus among the Jewish, pop Jewish populace. So, if you have Christ here, claiming to be the Son of God, steps in and says, in this public setting, with all these leaders, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar. Well now, you've got this crowd of angry Jewish people that are going to turn on Christ. And in turn, that's going to make it easier for them to get him arrested. So, can't really say yes. Two, if, 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 you know, this is the total opposite end, but before I say this, I want to help us remember that Christ is not some obscure figure at this point. You know, if, if you'll remember, going back to the triumphal entry, thousands of people were there witnessing that. The day before, he, he's just cast out thousands of people in the temple. People know who he is. They know who he is. So, if this, you know, very well-known figure comes and in this very public way says, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar. Well, now that's ammunition for these, particularly the Herodians, to go to the Roman rule and say, look, you've got this, this leader, this teacher, the people listen to him, he's claiming, he's claiming to be the son of God. He's, he's claiming to be God. And the people listen to him, and they're following him, and he's saying, don't pay taxes. Well, that's, that's nothing short of citing rebellion against Caesar and against Rome. I mean, can't really say yes, can't really say no. But, of course, how does Christ answer it? Perfectly. He not only evades their trap, but he gives them this powerful point that just leaves them totally stunned. So what's his point? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy. Okay, I, before we go on, I just... I just I love to see, because we can just repass something like this so quickly, but this just is, a, again, another reminder of the omniscience of our Lord. He knows all things. John 2, he says, he would not commit himself to man because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knows men. He knows what's in their heart. And he sees what's in their hearts and in their minds. So this, this reference of their hypocrisy, he's, he's kind of going back to what they've said about him. They said, hey, we know you're, this, you're true. You don't care about anybody's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances, but you just truly teach the way of God. They're trying to flatter him to get him to say what they want him to say. It obviously didn't work. But I just, I, I just want to just make this little point. You know, when, when people try to speak against Christ, if you ever enter into some dialogues with people who are maybe hostile to Christ, they can't really say anything negative. They can't assault his character. They can't assault his integrity. And it, even these Herodians and these Pharisees, they can't really say anything negative because he's perfect. He's God. You can't assault his integrity. And I just, I love that. Anyway, verse 15, we'll keep going. He said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to him, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marvel that. Jesus could have, could have taken this opportunity to, to speak against this oppressive Roman regime, the so-called Pax Romana. Speak against the injustices being committed, not against some 
you know, obscure people group, but against God's chosen people, the Jewish people. But he doesn't. He asks a question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And the answer is clear. Caesar's. It's Caesar's. The coin would have had a, it would have had a small image of Caesar on it. I mean, we, we can understand that. We can visualize that. That's, that's what our coins look like. I know we don't have a lot of them in 2023, but that's what they look like. Jesus is making the point here. If Caesar is the one who minted it, created it, it belongs to him as its creator. It was rightfully Caesar's. Listen, I know there's some things to be said about taxes here. And this isn't really about the taxes, I don't believe that. This isn't about the coin. The implication is whose likeness and inscription did these leaders bear? And I'd ask the same question as, whose likeness and inscription and image do you bear? Do I bear? They would have known the answer. And that's, that's, that's the first chapter of Scripture. Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Listen, Christ did not come to this world to overthrow Caesar, to free Israel for some short, temporary time. He came to reconcile sinners to God. He came so that any man, any woman, any child, no matter how profoundly sinful, can look to Christ and find life. That's why He came. And, and He came to, that we could actually know this God in whose image we're created. Isn't that amazing? Rightfully rendering, giving our life to Him. I mean, this is, this is Romans 12. I can't help but go here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And some translations of this, I think it's the King James particularly, says this is your reasonable act of worship. It's your reasonable worship to, to submit to your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Paul has just, in Romans, been establishing for 11 chapters this, this stark contrast of the, the depravity of man, the wickedness of man, the, the wickedness of my heart, your heart, our hearts, but yet in total opposite to that, the unrelenting, perfect love of God to step into this fallen world and redeem man, not just from their sin, not just from the consequences of that sin, not to just simply evade hell, that is true, but to actually know this God, to enter into this eternal, joy-filled life with this God whom we've so profoundly sinned against. That's why it's reasonable. And being created, again, being created in God's image, it communicates to us that as humans, we have this inherent value before God. He created all of us in this room with a purpose to reflect His nature to the world. Yes, we were created for His glory, but we were created to be with Him. And all, all these things that I've just kind of spoken about of, of living this life, they're really only fully realized when we know this God, when we walk with this God. And on its, it's, it's just simplest foundation. We wouldn't even have life if it weren't for God. I mean, we got to recognize that. So therefore... To render, we need to give back our life to its author and its sustainer. And again, this is a point. I believe it's just it's another 
merciful warning by Christ. These Herodians, these Pharisees, this, this rendering, this giving their life back to God was not a reality for them. They had a reputation of it. They had a public appearance of being godly men, but they were not interested in knowing the true God. And this is such a, a, a merciful reminder of our Lord to give your life to Him. Render your life back to Him. So after this, this failed trap by the Pharisees and the Herodians, at the Sanhedrin, they sit in their kind of their second attack, their second volley, the Sadducees. And again, they're trying to get him into some hot water so they can get him arrested. That's what they want. And they come with this question regarding the doctrine of the resurrection. That's verse 18. Sadducees, Sadducees came to him who say there is no, no resurrection, and they asked him a question. So this, this seems on the surface like a more more honest dialogue. Um, they want to engage this great teacher of God. They want to enter into some debate about an important theological question. That's what it seems like on the surface, but that's not the case at all. And we see it again, I just read it from verse 18, they're asking him a question about the resurrection, but they don't even believe in the resurrection. Um, they would have answered Job's question as, you know, Job, and I think it's chapter 14 says, though man dies, shall he yet live again? They would have said, no, he, he won't. The, the fancy word that they would have believed in is annihilationism. So when the, when the body dies, that's it. There's no afterlife, there's no eternity, that's just it. And I want to explore, I want to explore the Sadducee just for a minute longer. Um, Acts 23 tells us that the Sadducees they say there's no resurrection. We just read that. But they also say there's no angels. There's no spirits. But in contrast to that, the Pharisees, they acknowledge all of them. And I want to keep going on that fissure for a minute because we see the Pharisees here. They accept all these things. They accept the resurrection. They accept angels and demons and spirits. But the Pharisees, or I'm sorry, the Sadducees, they do not. So here's some major dividing lines between these two groups. The Pharisees, they believed in the sovereignty of God. God was governing all things. He was moving things to its rightful place. He was guiding history. The Sadducees did not believe that at all. Men were responsible, is what they said, for shaping the future, not God. And we see from the verse we just read that these, these Pharisees, they believed in the angels and the demons, but the Sadducees denied them both. This belief that the Sadducees held, and this is, I think, the most important point for what we're reading today. Yes, they denied the spiritual elements of Scripture. They denied all these spiritual beings, and they even denied the resurrection. This stemmed from their flawed or warped understanding of what was truly Scripture. The Sadducees, they denied the full canon of the Old Testament. They only acknowledged the Pentateuch books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. After that, nothing. Can't trust anything. That's what they believed. Total opposite of that, the Pharisees said, all of it, all of it, we accept all of it. The law, or the, the books of Moses, these historical books, the poetic books, the, prophet, the prophetic books, both the major and the minor, all of it. We accept all of it. I, I mean, these are major dividing lines against these groups. Just, I mean, one of these things is enough to say, we cannot 
have fellowship. We cannot link up together. We cannot work together. We're done. But I, I bring all these distinctions up for one reason. We have to see that despite all these things, these men, they had such hatred for Christ and particularly what he was doing by kind of bringing their rule of the temple and their reign and the popularity of the temple down. They had such hatred for him and what he was doing that they set all those major differences aside and said, we're going to come together, we're going to work together, and we're going to get this guy. And it's out of this, this disdain that, that the Sadducees have for Christ that they concoct this, I mean, highly hypothetical scenario that's just, it's ridiculous. Let's read about it again. Verse 19. This is their, this is their question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died, and left no offspring. The second took her, and died, and no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. The last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. I mean, this is just a ridiculous story. It just really is. But why? Why are they doing this? Well, I, I mean, presumably, they, they want to create some problems with the resurrection, this, this doctrine of the resurrection. It's going to make it seem like, look, this happens, there is a resurrection, there's going to be all these unresolved issues, and it's just, the goal is, I believe, they want to cast doubt on the resurrection, yes, but ultimately, they want to cast doubt on Christ. They want him to decrease in popularity, decrease in influence. And again, I can just kind of see it like they want him to just say something that makes him look foolish so that the people are going to go, he said that? The Son of God said that? And just make it easier for them to get him arrested. But of course, Christ responds in a way that just leaves them totally astonished. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the, dead, of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. Christ begins this with a, a rebuke. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. May that not be said of us. Man, may we be a people that we know who God is, we know his word, and we know the power of God. Yes? yes. And then he states, when they rise. Now, don't miss that. That is an absolute affirmation of the doctrine of the resurrection. Death is not the end for your soul. You will live on forever and ever. That's what he's saying right there. Now, I, I want to say at the beginning, before we keep going into this, <laughs> Jesus is not telling us we will become angels when we die. Okay? I know that that is such a popular concept in our culture, but it is foreign to the Word of God. And, I, and I, I know I'm kind of, we're kind of laughing a little bit because it's kind of, it sounds silly. But the reality is how so many people, they really believe that. 
And I've seen people, they did not love the Lord, they did not believe in Christ, and they died, and I believe with all my heart they're in hell right now. But how many people posted on Facebook afterwards, another angel added to heaven? It's, it's foreign to the Word of God, so I get that out of your mind. He's saying we will be like them in the sense they don't marry, nor are they given in marriage. Now, I know at this point you, you may that may kind of cause some discomfort. That may dishearten you a little bit. Maybe grieved at the thought of, you know, I want to be with my spouse in the resurrection. I, I, I don't I don't know how I feel about that. I think that's good to hear you. I think that's good that you feel that way, and I understand that. But I, I definitely think this is a way that we can be like the Sadducees, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Our minds must be fixed on the reality. There is a depth of joy and delight that God has prepared for His people in heaven that nothing on this earth compares to. That's where our minds have to be. And you just think about this simple point. There's not a single thing in heaven that will threaten your joy, your peace, your serenity. Not a thing. I can't go an hour without that happening on this life. Not a thing. And I just want to list a few things here about this resurrection. Not to say this is exhaustive, but I just these are some things I came across. This is Christ says this is a kingdom that God has prepared for us from the foundation of the world. God prepared a kingdom for us to walk into when we move on. This is a place where it's Isaiah 65, the former things will not be remembered. The losses pains, the deaths, the sins, totally removed. I, we have to be a people in this life, and I don't think as Christians we do this very well, we have to be people that grieve the losses. We need to grieve deaths. We need to grieve pains. Because nothing, the, the, the pains and the griefs and the deaths of this world, it's not the way it should be. It's not how God intended it. So we need to be a people that grieve those things, yes, and grieve them well. But, we need to be people that grieve them in light of eternity, in light of the things we just read. And this is a place, and I just I want to turn here to Revelation quickly. This is a place where we will dwell with God in perfect unity. I saw, this is, this is a Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I just think about this too. You know, we're, we're under, in this world, we're under a curse. That's Genesis 3. In this life to come, that will be totally reversed. Totally reversed. Only goodness. Only perfect life. I mean, have, have you read Psalm 16? Have you read what, what David wrote about dwelling with God? This is what he says in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. There will be nothing in that life to come to separate us from 
God's presence. No sin we can commit. I mean, no, we have a glorified body and a glorified mind in that life. Not, not even a sinful desire. Nothing we can do. You know, I just, I can't go a day without grieving the spirit that God's placed in me. I can't do it. And it strains this relationship that we have now. But in that life, not so. No more grief of the Holy Spirit. Only perfect relationship with Christ, with the Lord, the Spirit. Always. I want to say this last thing about that. Heaven is heaven. Because that's where God dwells. In all His goodness. This, this fullness of joy, these pleasures forevermore, this, this perfect life where the form things have passed away, these aren't just things that He just gives to the occupants of heaven. They're realities because that's where He is. That's who He is. That's why they're there. Heaven is about knowing this God of perfect life for all eternity. That's what makes heaven, heaven. That's where our minds need to be. Christ then, I don't know if I'm going over, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. Uh, Christ then, he takes these Sadducees to this passage in Exodus chapter 3. Now, this is incredibly significant because again, if you'll remember, the Sadducees, they deny all other scriptures but what? Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Christ is saying, you say there's no resurrection? You're indeed wrong. And I'll go to the one place in Scripture that you acknowledge, and I'll show you that you're wrong. So we see here, what do we see? God speaks to Moses in this text. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was. Not I have been. I am. This is hundreds of years after the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet God says, I am their God. Right here, right now, I am their God. And this is not just simply about, it is about this, but it's not only about Christ just correcting a doctrinal error of the canon of Scripture. It is about that. But this is Christ declaring to these hard-hearted Sadducees, Death is not the end for your soul. You will live on forever, and God is Lord of your soul forever. Now, as we kind of wrap up here, I think I think a warning is needed here for, for some, possibly even some in this room. I, I don't know. I, I enjoy uh, listening to it. He's long dead now, but I enjoy listening to a man named Leonard Ravenhill. And I would encourage you, if you get a chance, go listen to some of his sermons or read some of his books. He has a saying, and I don't really know if it's from him, but, but I've heard him say it a few times. We will all be found out. You will be found out. We live in this, in this culturally Christian area, the Bible Belt. So many profess to know Christ. So many profess to be saved. I was at a conference this week, and, and one of the speakers remarked, I just thought this was so profound. Don't make the mistake of, I, I think I'm saying this right, don't make the mistake of believing but not trusting. So many people accept ideas, but they don't truly put their faith in them. So many people accept, yeah, Christ died, but they accept it in the same way that they say Abraham Lincoln was president. It's of no value to them. It's nothing to put their faith in. It's just 
something that happened. Do you see? Do you see? And I mean, there may even be some here that I've just, I've just described to you. You may be like these Sadducees. Things of eternity, these are not concrete ideas. These aren't motivational. These are just kind of intellectual stimulation for you. They're nothing to set your hope on. They're nothing to build your life around. I think we need to, to remember this. We will all stand before that great white throne and give an account. I mean, you just you think about the few times we have these, these images of, of this taking place in Scripture. Isaiah, what, what a profoundly terrifying but beautiful image, is it not? He gets caught up into heaven and he just takes a glimpse at the Lord and he says, woe is me, I'm undone. He says, I'm unclean, he sees it. And you get John, John, the disciple who described himself as the one that Christ loved, that, that Christ loved. He said in Revelation 2, when I saw the risen Lord, it, it was just to such a degree that it, it terrified him. He said, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. I mean, the descriptors of Christ in this are, are just, I know they're, they're not necessarily literal, but they are frightening. His eyes are a flaming fire. His feet are of burnished bronze. And he's, when he speaks, his voice is like the roar of many waters. The reality is all people, they will trust in this Christ. They will trust that in this resurrection, but for some it will just be too late. You will trust when it's too late. So I just, I, I would urge, and again, we need to be people that, that urge others to, yes, fear this God, to be in awe, to be in reverence, yes, but to flee to Him. To flee to Him. We don't need to be like these Sadducees who died portraying themselves as these religious leaders, but died in their unbelief, died not trusting, not really believing. And I would just take us to what first thing we need to say is, you know, about believing these things and, and even rendering our life to God, I think step one, believe the Son. Believe what the Son has said. This is John 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whatever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And I just love that. Never cast out. He'll never cast you out. From the sinner that has gone into this, this world and just drank deep from the wells of immorality to the religious hypocrite that may have been playing a lie for decades, Christ says, Come. Come unto me. Unto him. He won't cast you out. That's, that's the beauty of our God. I, I had a, a scripture that I wanted to read, but uh, I just, I'm going to, I'm way past, I think. So, um, I, I want to read with this, this one last verse. This is 1 Corinthians 2. And this is Paul, just kind of this amalgam of all these verses from the Old Testament. He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. And that's, that's where our minds need to be. Daily and 
deeply contemplating these things that lie before us, this eternal glory, this joy. And let that be what guides us. Let that be what we shape our life around. Let that be what empowers us. Lord, we just thank you so much for this time. God, I just praise you for your word. I praise you for its, at times, just simplicity, but also profundity and its power, God. I just pray for us that we would be a people that, that know you, that know your power, and also know your word and live in light of it. God, I just pray if, if there are any people here today that, that do not know you, that do not trust in you, I, I pray would you help them to not even leave this building before they do that. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Amen.